This podcast is not intended to be an investigative report, and all opinions stated herein are opinions strictly from the hosts and are not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. This is a true crime podcast and may contain information that may be disturbing to some listeners. Audience discretion is advised. Welcome to Vintage Homicide, the true crime podcast being presented to you by two forensic scientists with a passion for the vintage lifestyle. We are your hosts, Ms. Ruby Wild and Ms. Mayday. We will bring you historic murders with special insight into the era and the forensics involved to look back at what crime solving may have been like. This podcast is benefiting the 501c3 Bombshell Betty's Calendar for Charity, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to raise support and awareness for veterans' charities through community involvement, photography, and pinups. Today, we're going to be talking about the University of Stanford and how its history is more mysterious than what you think. Ruby Wild, what do you mean by that? I mean, did you know that one of the co-founders of Stanford was actually allegedly murdered? I did not know. Tell me more. So let's start with the backstory of everything. First, we have Jane Stanford, who was born Jane Lathrop in New York. She was the daughter of a shopkeeper, and she got married to a man named Leland Stanford in 1850. So Leland's history is that he was a lawyer who lost everything that he had in a fire in 1852. He went to California to be with his brothers during the gold rush, and what they wanted to do was sell supplies to the miners. So Mayday, you know all about the gold rush, right? As you wear your 49ers shirt? Absolutely. I am a 49ers fan, and henceforth, I know everything there is to know about the California gold rush. In January of 1848, the first gold was found at Sutter's Fort which is a town in the California foothills just outside San Francisco. And within months, uh, San Francisco boomed into the central port and depot of the frenzied gold rush. So basically, the following year in 1849, many people were arriving, and they were being called 49ers, and it increased the city's population from about 1,000 to 25,000. And during this time, because of this boom of population, It started attracting many people who came there quickly to start founding lots of companies to support the gold rush and the 49ers. And a part of this influx of individuals came a very wealthy um, construction and miners and railroad workers, such as the big four, Charles Crocker, Mary Hopkins, Collis P. Huntington, and of course, Leland Stanford. And... San Francisco boomed, and lots of immigrants from China came to work on the railroad to support the gold mines. And to this day, many businesses are still found in San Francisco, like Levi Strauss and Company, Ghirardelli Chocolates, and Wells Fargo Bank. As you said, he was the co-founder of the Pacific Railroad, Central Pacific Railroad. Must be specific. Correct. Um, He also, at one point, was the governor of California, and he served as our state senator at one point. And so all of this backstory on Leland is important because it provided him with the amount of funds that he was able to use to start purchasing land. And he purchased a lot of land. And one of these purchases is going to eventually be the future location of Stanford University. So going back just a little bit, Jane and Leland had a child together in 1868, and they named him Leland Jr. But Leland Jr. actually would travel with his father a lot and, like, do all these explorations that Leland was all about. 
And during one of these trips, he contracted typhoid fever, and he had a prolonged illness, and he passed away at the age of 15 in 1884. So... Obviously, the parents were completely crushed. They thought that they had no more purpose in their life. And they had a dream that Leland Jr. came back to them and basically said, like, you guys are great parents. Be parents to the rest of the children in California. And so they decided to create a university in California to keep their son's memory alive. And they named it Leland Stanford Jr. University. All right. I'm going to give you this one because you... Don't get to brag about yourself a lot. (laughs) So what do you have to say that is humorous about it being named Leland Stanford Junior University? So as a graduate of Berkeley, the greater university across the bay, (laughs) um, we would always tease people who go to Stanford University um, as students who attended the junior university And unbeknownst to probably many of the students at Berkeley, uh, the junior didn't refer to a lesser university, but his son, who was named Leland Jr. That's just a fun little anecdote that she decided that she had to tell me, so I was (laughs) going to let her share it with you guys, because I did not know that that rivalry even existed. Um, Because those of us that are not Ivy Leaguers, yeah, I'm not an Ivy Leaguer, don't get to know this kind of stuff. Berkeley's not actually an Ivy League school. It is a public university, but Stanford, for whatever reason, gets considered an Ivy League school. We'll get back to that, too. (laughs) So they created this university, and it was established in 1855. Leland Sr. worked on building the campus, and Jane was working on creating a museum with her son's collection items and the family's art collection. The campus officially opened in 1891 with a small—it was a small start, but they made it so that way it was going to be large enough to be able to grow. So what is amazing about the development of this university is it was only the second co-ed university of Ivy League schools in existence at that time. They based their entire model of this university on Cornell, who was the first co-ed university Ivy League. And— Yeah, so they did the structure, the educational structure, based on Cornell. So just to give this some perspective, the very next Ivy League school that finally admitted women and let them get their uh, degrees from that university happened in 1969. So it did take that long for all other universities to work on their equality. So, unfortunately, very shortly after the construction of this university, Leland Sr. died in 1893 at the age of 69. When he died, the bank froze all of his accounts, and that included all the accounts that were funding the university. So, Jane, not wanting to lose this university, decided to use her own money to keep the campus open. Eventually, in 1898, the bank finally released the funds, and Jane was able to recoup some of her cost. So during this entire time, Jane was running the university, and it was because of her insistence that it stayed co-ed and women be admitted. She was involved in the daily management of the school, and she chose who was able to be educated at the university. She completely built this university believing that it should be a liberal arts school. In 1903, Jane relinquished control of the board of trustees, but she retained the title of president. 
There was a founding president of the university, David Jordan, that she didn't trust fully because he kept trying to change the curriculum to science-based. So Jane had a friend and a confidant, a German professor named Julius Gobel, or Gibel, the German pronunciation, just pretend I said it right, to watch Jordan and report back to her about like what he was doing behind her back. So Jordan and Jane were constantly arguing about funding, educational directions, who to have on their teaching staff. So it was a very tumultuous relationship. So between 1903 and 1905, this is the give and take battle that was happening. And I do know that Mayday has a very fun fact about what also was happening around this time, like 1903 and 1905 in San Francisco. Yes. So fun fact, between 1900 and 1904 in San Francisco, there was a bubonic plague or a black plague outbreak. In 1900, a ship that had brought rats that were infected with bubonic plague came to San Francisco because at this time, San Francisco, again, was a huge port city. And um, this was essentially the first documented plague epidemic in the continental U.S. on the West Coast. And at that time, um, the doctors mistakenly believed that the interred corpses contributed to the transmission of plague. And so they basically, all the city leaders, banned all burials within the city. So what that meant was cemeteries were being moved outside of San Francisco. And to this day, most of the dead of San Francisco are buried in a town called Colma, which is just south of San Francisco. And it's really funny because... This is why there are no cemeteries in San Francisco except for maybe the one at the military cemetery, um, as well as the one in Dolores Park area. Um, Those were the two oldest because the one in Dolores Park is actually an above-ground cemetery. But it's curious just because we know that plague is actually transmitted by rats, and that knowledge didn't become widely known until later, and it's kind of further related to this case, and particularly because strychnine is a very popular poison to kill rats, and strychnine will ultimately bring about the demise of Jane Stanford. Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) So, as Mayday said, so January 1905, uh, Jane was in her mansion in San Francisco, and she drank a glass of spring water from a bottle that had been placed in her room. When she drank this water, she tasted something bitter, and she was actually a brilliant woman, so she forced herself to vomit because she was like, dude, this ain't water. I'm sure she said something way more classy than that. And she called for help. And the two women, who are Jane's attendees, they came in, she told them about the water. They both bravely tasted said water and agreed with her that it tasted funny. She had this bottle of water sent off to be tested in a forensic lab, and it was noted that the bottle contained enough strychnine to kill someone very quickly. So Jane had one of these women that were present, a maid named Elizabeth Richmond, and Jane fired her. Like, she had no proof or anything. She just assumed that this Elizabeth Richmond was the woman who poisoned her. So she got fired. The incident was reported to the police, But since there was no evidence, like I said, she was fired for no evidentiary reason, nobody had any clue who poisoned her water, um, nothing could be done. This caused Jane to become a little bit, with every right, paranoid, and so she decided to leave Stanford for a while and go on a vacation. 
So she set sail towards Hawaii in February of 1905. And she had an upset stomach on this journey, and she asked for bicarbonate soda for her upset stomach. Uh, Jane's personal secretary, Bertha Berner, prepared this bicarbonate soda for her. And Bertha is the other woman that was present on the day of the first poisoning. Quickly, Jane called out for help. She lost control of her body. She was begging for a doctor. And the doctor arrived and found Jane in a titanic spasm. So after this spasm, Jane quickly ceased breathing. They couldn't revive her. And she was officially declared dead at the age of 76. And the doctor that was present at the time claimed that it appeared to be strychnine poisoning. The police arrived. They collected the bicarbonate soda water glass. And she also had these Kasaka capsules that were present, and those are a laxative. So they got those as well. They ordered an autopsy on Jane, and forensic analysis, the bicarbonate contained the strychnine. They also found the strychnine in her tissues. So at this point, everybody in Hawaii, which is where she is at the time, is like, yep, girl was murdered. So you would think that's super straightforward, and like the case is just going to proceed, but no, Stanford was notified, and Jordan, the one that she's in like this tumultuous, you know, battle over Stanford with, took it upon himself to, without any evidence whatsoever, report that she had not been poisoned, but she died from heart failure. Hmm. So, um, let's give us a little bit of background on strychnine and why this is completely absurd to say. Strychnine is naturally derived from a plant called Strychnos nux vomica. This plant is found in southern Asia, specifically in India, Sri Lanka, and the East Indies, as well as Australia. So at the time, strychnine was probably available in a pill form because it was actually used to treat many human ailments, um, kind of like a low-dose poison, essentially, to cure whatever ailments that individuals had. It was pretty much incorrectly used, um, like many of our old turn-of-the-century medications. Um, but strychnine was easily concealed in bicarbonate tablets because a strychnine is a white, odorless, crystalline powder, and it has a very bitter flavor. So sodium bicarbonate also tends to have a bitter flavor, so it's concealed very easily in water, um, which is probably why it didn't raise any red flags for Jane when she first started drinking it. And strychnine basically causes these titanic spasms or epistotonic posturing, which is essentially seizure-like. And these seizures are caused because strychnine prevents the proper operation of the chemical that controls nerve signals to the muscles. So essentially, it blocks these on-off switches for our muscles and our body, which is essentially causing it to uncontrollably fire and contract. And so essentially, the body starts immediately going into this heightened awareness state. Um, you can start vomiting, and you'll start having these muscle contractions, and these convulsions can last from 30 seconds to two minutes. And what ultimately ends up happening is that the person cannot stop spasming, and then eventually their muscles tire, and the person can no longer breathe, and um, death ensues shortly thereafter. So this is what happened when Jane ingested the strychnine. And the process of the strychnine would explain why it was found in her body tissues during the autopsy as well, because that was its final hoorah, for lack of a better term. 
Correct. It's absorbed into the body's muscles, and that is why the muscles twitch and convulse. And so during an autopsy, when they look at the tissues, they can see the presence of strychnine there. So now let's break down our suspects. So number one suspect is obviously Elizabeth Richmond. That was the maid who was fired. She did have access to Jane Stanford's belongings before this trip. She obviously is disgruntled because she got fired for whatever reason that couldn't be proven. I mean, she could have been the first one that actually poisoned and then poisoned, like, tried it again. Or she could have been angry and tried the second time, basically saying, I was already blamed the first. I might as well just go through with it. Or she could have had absolutely nothing to do with it. So she was cleared, but it's not quite sure, like, what they used to clear her. It could have been um, access. It could have been motive. It could have been means. Or it could have been opportunity. But she was officially cleared. So now we have our two real suspects in this case. The first of which is Bertha. Bertha is the only person to have been present at both poisonings. She had been Jane's personal secretary for 30 years. She was allotted a substantial sum in Jane's will. Jane um, also had, like, given her lots of money throughout. Like, this woman has never been left wanting. So she actually was as valuable alive as she was deceased to Bertha. So she had varying testimonies um, of the events that led up to the poisoning. She had complete access to all of Jane's medications, food, and drink. And then eventually, as time goes on, she wrote a book about Jane and it, the book claims that Jane died from heart failure caused by overeating. So even Bertha's trying to say, not nah, everybody, it's natural causes, when we all know it wasn't natural causes. So why would you do that? But like I said, Bertha gained just as much from Jane being alive as she did from her being dead, even though she did get a substantial amount in the will. So now we go to the other suspect, which is Jordan. And Jordan also claimed that she died of heart failure. There was growing tension between Jane and Jordan, and he believed that Jane may be close to firing him. This is where Gobel um, has been reporting to Jane that Jordan was showing favoritism, and it affected enrollment at the university. And so Jane was completely not okay with this. She thought that all um, applications to the university should be based on merit and not favoritism for teaching staff as well as students. So when she died, he declared heart disease, not poisoning. Um, he accused the coroner of adding strychnine to the samples. He was obstinate, but we don't know if he was obstinate because he was just trying to protect the university and didn't want the university to have like this era of a murder over like one of its co-founders. The other thing is, okay, so this is like wildly speculative, but it was rumored or alleged that Jordan and Bertha had, you know, gone hand in hand to have this done together. So they either had a relationship or a friendship or whatever because Bertha had the means but not the motive. Jordan had the motive but not the means. So you put the two together. The other thing about Jordan, I'm just going to say this, he was a jerk that was trying to like progress eugenics in this time. For people who have no clue what eugenics is and why I think he's a jerk, Mayday, can you enlighten us? 
Yes. Earlier you had mentioned that uh, part of Jane and Jordan's kind of contentions surrounded this issue of science. So although adding science to the curriculum is not bad for a university, what was really interesting and kind of corrupt was that Jordan's particular brand of science, he was basically promoting the concept of improving human genetics through removal from breeding those he deemed unworthy to reproduce. Breeding. Like, not like relationships. Breeding. He did not want people that he viewed in a negative light to copulate to make a baby. Correct. So this was a way of improving our species, in his opinion, which was removing and not allowing those individuals who were unseemly in the population to reproduce and pass on their genetic traits. <laughs> so, yes, it's science-based, but the application of the science in this at this time in eugenics specifically is corrupt and just completely wrong. He published his opinions in a publication called The Blood of the Nation, and uh, he chaired the first committee on eugenics of the American Breeders Association. So yes, that was actually a real thing, the Committee on Eugenics of the American Breeders Association. Um, So basically what came out of this was that there was a forced program of deportation and sterilization. So this is a very dark spot in California's history, as well as sweeping the nation at that time, this sentiment about eugenics. It was, I don't want to say commonly held belief, but there definitely was this movement to kind of affect change in our species by embettering our species through eugenics. He went on to help fund the Human Betterment Foundation. Again, he thought that this was all for the embetterment of humankind, which was, again, a very skewed way to apply science. The Human Betterment Foundation published something called the Sterilization for Human Betterment, and part of that was his eugenics-based argument against warfare, which is good that, you know, he was speaking out against war, but again, on a skewed belief that war was detrimental to the human species because it removed the strongest men from the gene pool. So his desire to kind of prevent war was only fueled by the fact that he thought that the men that were fighting this war were the best versions of Americans, and therefore we wanted to propagate their genes and not the infirm or the weak or the less, I guess, desirable elements of American species. So um, all of this was essentially what Jordan believed, and which is why Ruby thinks that he is abhorrible, and I agree. That aside, um, that is an interesting, when you think about the shaping of a university, specifically one like Stanford, which was supposed to be so progressive, which is why Jane um, Stanford was at odds with Jordan, because I think their beliefs in who was being admitted to the university greatly differed, right? So Jordan was probably utilizing his his belief in eugenics to handpick certain individuals to attend this university. And this was going against, you know, Jane Stanford's desire to basically allow people in based on merit. And that did not really involve a person's genetics, right? So my own personal opinion is just because I want it to be. I have absolutely no proof on this, but I don't like the dude. So Jordan sucks. 
But and is probably guilty. <laughs> Hopefully. Um Unfortunately, here's where all trails go cold because, once again, we're going to go into a little bit of history. In 1906, there was a gigantic fire that occurred in San Francisco that destroyed all of the police documents for the previous years. So, Mayday, you've got some history on this giant fire, correct? Right. This fire was actually a result of an earthquake um, that happened on April 18th in 1906. So this devastating earthquake essentially ruptured uh, 270 miles of the San Andreas Fault from San Juan Bautista to Eureka. And this fault line, the San Andreas Fault, slipped about 10 feet or more. And this earthquake that basically caused um, the fire lasted only two minutes, and it was about a 7.8 magnitude. This massive earthquake roars through San Francisco. The water mains break, um, and fires started burning uncontrollably in the city for about a couple days, I think like three to four days. It burns down approximately 80% of the city, um, including almost all of the downtown, which would include the police department and all of the records regarding Jane Stanford's case. So unfortunately, because of this, all suspects, interviews, all ways that people were cleared, though they may have been known at the time, those of us in current day, i.e. Mayday and myself, we can only have access to the stuff that was public knowledge, not the stuff that was police-only knowledge, because all records were destroyed. So we are left with our suspect pool, nobody getting convicted, and basically Stanford still lightly will say that Jane Stanford died of natural causes. So they will never say or admit that she was murdered. They just say that their co-founder died of natural causes. So the other interesting fact about Stanford is just recently in 2019, though it was highly contentious for whatever reason, um, Stanford named the street that the university is on, they renamed it from... Um, Sarah Mall to Jane Stanford Way as a way of honoring her, um, basically, her development of this entire university that these people go to. And I say it was contentious because some people are like, uh, she wasn't the greatest. And everybody's like, she may not have been the greatest, but she's the entire reason that this university made it what it is today. So that's pretty much where this case stands. It is going to remain unsolved forever. Homicide is produced by J.H. Cabral. Additional editing and theme music produced by Matt Beck. A special thanks to Bonnie Navarro Photography and Bombshell Betty's Calendar. Please visit bombshellbettyscalendars.com for more information. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Vintage Homicide Podcast. Please subscribe wherever you prefer to download your podcasts and join us next time for more tantalizing tales of murder and mystery.